Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, the Tupac series, The Life and Death of Tupac Shakur. This is the second episode in the Tupac series where we deep dive Tupac's life, his influence in music and the world, and his untimely death. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Without a sergeant, without any backup, without any other soldiers, nobody but a Vietnam vet in Vietnam, when he came home, how would he be? And that's me. I had to go through all that street, war, everything, the same drugs that everybody else get turned out on. You know, where I would have been stopped shorted, I made it past. And here's where I am. But because I made it past, I missed some lessons. You know what I'm saying? And you can see the lessons that I miss when you talk to me. You can see where, where I haven't had a father when you talk to me. You know what I'm saying? You can see where I spent a lot of my time in the streets when you talk to me. Because the words that I say are not words that come from a mother's mouth or a father's mouth. It's words that come from a pimp's mouth or a prostitute or a hustler or a drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? But to me, these were my role models. But had I had a father, had I had some of these opportunities, I'd have been able to help my mother more. She wouldn't have went the road she went. I could have been a better son. It was the absence of my father. You know what I'm saying? I'm dealing with him being daddy not being there. My mother's dealing with him being my man not being there. You know, so many problems in our community that that um, affect everything. So by me not having that, I ain't never want to hear nothing about no kind of relationships between a black man and a black woman. I knew they didn't work. Because as far as I knew, my daddy was the coolest dude out there. And my mama was a panther. So if they didn't work, it don't work. That's how in the I heart think. of a tumultuous era, where the echoes of change reverberated through society, there emerged a figure who would not only redefine the world of hip-hop, but also become a symbol of resilience and activism. Born in the gritty streets of East Harlem in 1971, Tupac's story begins long before the fame and the controversies. It starts with his remarkable mother, Afini Shakur, a formidable force in her own right who instilled in him a passion for justice and creativity. We'll also explore his complex relationships with his real father, Billy Garland, and his stepfather, Matulu Shakur, both of whom played pivotal roles in shaping the man behind the music. 
as we peel back the layers of Tupac's early years and unearth the influences, struggles, and aspirations that set the stage for his extraordinary journey through life, you will come to understand what drove Tupac and why his destiny was written long before he was born. This is the story of a young black male whose voice would echo far beyond the confines of his neighborhood and whose impact would resonate through generations to come. Alice Faye Williams was born on January 10, 1947, in Lumberton, North Carolina. In North Carolina, Alice lived with her parents, Rosa Bell and Walter Williams Jr., and her older sister, Gloria Jean Williams, who went by Glow. Alice grew up in a home filled with violence, and she spent her younger years watching her mother being beaten by her father, a cycle of abuse that would follow her into her own relationships. The family moved from Lumberton to Norfolk, Virginia for work, but when Rosabelle had enough of the abuse, she left Walter, and she took the girls back to Lumberton. In 1958, when Alice was 11 years old, Rosabelle made the decision to uproot the girls again and she moved the family to South Bronx, New York, where she got a job working in a factory. Alice went to Benjamin Franklin Junior High School, where she was an honor student. At Benjamin Franklin, Alice wrote for the newspaper, and in the ninth grade, she won the journalism award and was publicly recognized by Mayor Robert F. Wagner. In 1962, at the age of 15, Alice passed the high school qualifying examinations, and she had a choice of attending the Bronx High School of Science, or the Manhattan High School of Performing Arts. She chose the School of Performing Arts, believing that performers lived a more carefree life. Unfortunately, with only Rosabelle's income, Alice's family were barely making ends meet, and she couldn't afford school supplies, and quickly began feeling like an outcast at the school. Her education was often disrupted with fights between other students. She would later state that the violence stemmed from not feeling safe, she would drop out of school after only one term and soon joined the notorious street gang, The Disciples. As a teenager, Alice would be exposed to drug use and she began using cocaine as a teen. Growing up in the 1960s as a young black female, Alice was surrounded by injustice and discrimination, both for being black but also for being a woman. This enraged her and she soon became interested in politics and activism. At a rally in 1968, when she was only 21 years old, Alice heard the infamous Bobby Seale speak, and soon she joined the Black Panthers. It would be here where Alice would meet her soon-to-be husband, Lumumbu Shakur, and convert to Islam. The couple would marry in November of 1968, and Alice would change her name from Alice Williams to Afini Shakur. Afini rose in the ranks of the Black Panther Party quickly, and soon she was made a section leader of the Harlem chapter. She also wrote for the party newspaper. Two of the most valuable lessons I learned in the Black Panther Party came from Afeni Shakur. She says, freedom is an abstract idea to folk. To someone who is hungry, it's the meal. To someone who doesn't have a place to stay, it's a warm, safe place to sleep. For the sick is medical care from someone who cares. One of my first days in the party, a young mother comes in carrying her little girl, is crying and trembling. She explains that her daughter has sickle cell anemia and that she had taken her to Harlem Hospital and that they said that all she had was a cold, that it was psychosomatic. So Mumba and Afeni marched to Harlem Hospital holding this girl. And Afeni said, you treat this young sister right now, but there's going to be a psychosomatic riot in your emergency room. 
But Fanny didn't leave it alone at that. She formed a relationship with a couple of the doctors and nurses, and we would rally together outside the hospital, demanding that they treat the needs of the people, whether they had insurance or not. And then especially Lincoln Hospital became the place where Panthers and the Young Lords started doing these takeovers. Come get tested, come get treated. And they wrote the first patient bill of rights, the foundational document for what we see in every hospital room now, where a patient has the right to be treated, a right to medical care, whether they have money or not. That was the work of Afeni Shakur, Doc Dawkins, Cleo Silvers, the Panthers and the Lords. I am in awe of my sister. She either started the shit or got in the shit that was already started. If she agreed to do something, it was done thoroughly. So what that made you do, being in her company, either step up or step off. Her son, same thing. It's the same type of spirit that they had. Both charismatic, both took charge of a room, both intelligent, articulate, argumentative, you know, so there was a lot of a fainted there in power. Once the Black Panthers made the federal government's radar, they were labeled a threat to the nation and undercover agents began infiltrating the organization to eliminate the threat. On April 2nd of 1969, Afeni and 20 other Black Panthers were arrested and charged under federal statute with conspiracy to bomb police stations and other public places in New York. Their bail was set at $100,000. That's close to $800,000 in today's currency. And that was for each member that had been arrested. The Black Panthers began raising bail for Afeni to get her out of jail and allow her to raise the bail for the other remaining incarcerated Black Panthers. The trial began on September 8, 1970. Afeni was only 23 years old and she was facing federal charges of attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and conspiracy to bomb buildings. Afeni chose to represent herself at trial. She would later write in her autobiography, I was young, I was arrogant, and I was brilliant in court because I thought this was the last time I could speak, the last time before they locked me up forever. I was writing my own obituary. The Panther 21 were acquitted of all charges in May of 1971 after an eight-month trial. Afeni had been incarcerated at the New York Women's House of Detention for two years. While Afeni had been out on bail, she had engaged in an extramarital affair with Billy Garland, a fellow Black Panther from the New Jersey branch, and had gotten pregnant. After being acquitted, she gave birth to a son, Lassane Parish Crooks, on June 16, 1971. Afeni was 24 years old. When Lumumbu realized that the child was not his, he filed for divorce, and Afeni and Lumumbu divorced in 1971. A year after giving birth to her son, she changed his name to Tupac Amaru Shakur. After Afeni's release from jail, she did not return to the Black Panther Party. In 1975, when she was 28 years old and young Tupac was just four years old, she married Mutulu Shakur, the adopted brother of her former husband, Lumumbu. Their daughter, Sakiwa Shakur, who they called Set, was born that same year, October 4, 1975. Afeni worked as a paralegal while living in East Harlem after Tupac's birth. In 1982, she divorced Mutulu, who was wanted by the FBI for his role in a Brinks armored car heist in which a guard and two police officers were killed. Tupac was 11 years old. Struggling to make ends meet as a single mother with two children and living in East Harlem in 1984, 
of Feeney, who was 37, made the decision to relocate the family to Baltimore, Maryland. In Maryland, the family remained on welfare as Afini struggled to keep a job and remain in control of her drug addiction. By 1988, with no electricity in her home, Afini made the decision to ship her two children, Tupac, who was 16, and Set, who was just 12, to San Francisco. She placed the two children in a Greyhound bus and sent them to San Francisco alone to stay with a former Black Panther colleague. Afini joined them later, and they settled in Marin City, in a drug-infested ghetto neighborhood on the outskirts of Oakland, California. There, Afini fell under the spell of crack cocaine, and the family continued to struggle as she battled her demons. In 1989, frustrated with the situation at home, Tupac left home. He was 18 years old at the time and chose to live with friends in an abandoned building rather than stay at home. The once-loving relationship that Afini and Tupac shared had been strained due to her drug abuse, and Tupac found it difficult to respect his mother's weakness and lack of self-control. In 1991, Afini returned to New York as she enrolled herself in rehab. Nine months into her rehabilitation, Tupac sent her $5,000, even though their relationship was severely strained at the time. It would take years, but they would resolve their differences and find peace in their relationship. On September 7, 1996, Afini would be at a loss, facing another pivotal event in her life when news of Tupac's shooting reached her. Hi, I'm Tabitha Thorin, and this is The Week in Rock. Trouble-plagued rapper and actor Tupac Shakur is dead at the age of 25, just about a week after sustaining four bullet wounds last Saturday night in Las Vegas. Shakur spent the weekend in the hospital on a respirator in critical condition. The Reverend Jesse Jackson, members of the Nation of Islam, and fellow Death Row Records artist Hammer visited Shakur's bedside on Sunday when he had one of his lungs removed. Shakur's mother, Afini, featured in his Dear Mama video, and other family members kept a vigil at his hospital room in the intense care unit of University Medical Center in Las Vegas. Early in the week, doctors rated Tupac's chances of survival at one in five, then said his chances had improved on Tuesday, then on Thursday declined to speculate on his prognosis at all. Suge Knight, who was released from the hospital Sunday night, finally spoke with police on Wednesday and told them he, quote, heard something but saw nothing last Saturday night, leaving the cops with, as one spokesman put it, nothing, quote unquote, in the way of leads towards suspects or motives. Police also looked at she security She would be forced to pull life support from Tupac on September 13th after just six days of Tupac being in the ICU. She would be named the executor of his estate and she would start the Tupac Amaru Shakur Foundation in his honor, funding scholarships for youths interested in the arts. Afini would pass away from cardiac arrest on May 2nd, 2016, at the age of 69 in Sausalito, California. And developing news now out of California, and the mother of the late rapper Tupac Shakur has died. According to the Marin County Sheriff's Department, Afini Shakur may have had a heart attack. Officials were called out to her home last night at around 9 o'clock. The 69-year-old was taken to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Tupac was killed nearly 20 years ago right here in Las Vegas, right near Cobol and Flamingo after leaving a Mike Tyson fight. The film crews were seen last month filming in that area for the upcoming biopic. Feeney grew up in a pretty violent, and, and it's crazy because we think about the perpetuation of violence, that cycle of violence, and when you grow up in a violent household, it does impact you as a person, as a, as a kid growing up, you know, there's going to be anger, resentment, there's going to be s some level of, of not understanding, and 
It looks like as the family moves to New York and she gets into her teenage years, she's struggling with this anger. And I think it's frustrating too when you're obviously she was very smart and to have the ability to pursue something that you want to at a young age is important. And she wasn't able to do that. So, you know, their family just didn't have the money for it. And, you know, sometimes when something like that happens, it can kind of derail you from the direction that maybe you could have gone. It looks like she was looking to belong. She was trying to belong to something because she, she gets involved first with the performing arts and she can't belong there. She's outcast. And so that causes her to act out. And then she drops out of school and she joins the disciples. And there she's belonging to something bigger than herself. But she's not about the criminal activity of it. I I don't think that's kind of what was driving her. It was more about the belonging to a group. But then she finds the Black Panthers as she reaches her 20s. She's becoming more of an adult. She's like, oh, this is where I want to, you know, have an outlet of, you know, my contribution to society in an activist type of form. And then she finds belonging there as well. Unfortunately, after the trial, the Panther 21, she now has a family of her own and she doesn't want to expose them to the risk of that. Right. And, you know, I feel like when she heard the speech and she joined the Black Panthers, I feel like the speech was something of a, like an inspiration for her. And like you were talking about the belonging, it, made her feel like it was an important cause and something where she felt a sense of value, like she was, you know, valuable. And I think she was, you know, she was very intelligent and she had a lot to offer. And I I feel like she brought a lot to the table. And when the 21 were arrested, she represented herself and she did very well. She is even credited with outing some of the dirty FBI agents. And that was a really big deal. I mean, that's not easy to do. She did it while they were on the stand, while she was cross-examining them, which I think is pretty incredible. A lot of attorneys couldn't do that. So the fact that she was able to do that and she was representing herself is pretty amazing. She didn't make good choices in her relationships. It's a point of weakness for her. She first gets with... Lumumbu, and then she cheats on him with Billy Garland, and then she gets with the adopted brother of Lumumbu. There's these relationship issues that she's having, and there is conversation about her relationships that she was having when they were in Baltimore, when they relocated to Baltimore, and Tupac witnesses one of her mom's boyfriends hitting her. And it, it just seemed like she just wasn't making good relationship choices. And that's actually pretty common when you have an environment like she did. So she was raised in an abusive environment. She observed her dad abusing her mom. And so even though realistically you know that that's not normal and that's not loving and that's not a good relationship, subconsciously you're kind of drawn to that. And that's where that cycle of violence comes in. And so I think that is largely to do with that pattern for her. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the drug use was a coping mechanism for Athene 
as she struggled. One, she couldn't find where to belong. Right. I think that was part of it. I think the other part of it was she was struggling. And typically people who are struggling try to escape their reality. And I think she was trying to escape her reality. And of course, that's a very spiraling process of I want to escape. So I use drugs and then my situation gets worse because now I'm not going to work. I'm missing hours. I'm, you know, things like that that are happening. And in Baltimore, they get to the point where they're about to be homeless. They're in a house with no power. And she's like, I got to do something different. And they end up moving to California. Obviously, during the 80s was a huge crack epidemic, and Afeni gets caught up in that crack. I don't think she was doing crack in Baltimore, or at least Tupac didn't know she was doing crack in Baltimore. But if you watch The Wire, (laughs) that's about Baltimore, and that's about the crack epidemic in Baltimore. Um, Baltimore was deep into the crack epidemic, just like New York was, just like California was. And when they relocate to California, she's in the middle of a crack neighborhood where everybody's on crack. And you know, what's interesting is that the Black Panther Party, one of their charges was to try to eliminate the impact of the drugs that were cycling through their neighborhoods and killing a lot of the people. And so they were trying to get those drugs out of the streets. And it's unfortunate that she got caught up in what they were trying to eliminate. Right. On the bright side, Feeney makes a decision to enroll herself in rehab. And typically that's a thing that you have to do for yourself. It's not something that someone can make you do. And as Tupac was finding his way in the world, I think Afini was looking for her way in the world as well. And they both kind of came together. As Tupac found his voice, Afini found recovery. And they were able to mend their relationship. And you can see from that Tupac was a forgiving person. Because he very well could have been planted his flag on the fact that his mom had failed him as a kid. And instead of doing that, he forgave her and he didn't make excuses for her, but he did say, I know you were struggling. I knew that you were going through your own struggles and I know that you were doing the best that you could as a mom who had challenges. She passed away at 69 years old, which is really young. Yeah, she did pass away very young. You know, I think she had a tough life. Aside from that, she lost a child before she passed, something that you shouldn't have to experience as a parent. And I'm pretty sure that that played into her early death as well. Gerald Wayne Williams was born on August 8, 1950, in Baltimore, Maryland. In 1957, when Gerald was seven years old, he relocated to Jamaica, Queens, New York City, with his mother and his younger sister. His mother was blind. By the time he was in his late teens, Gerald was politically active with the Revolutionary Action Movement, RAM, an ideology that was adapted by the Black Panthers. Gerald eventually joined the Republic of New Africa, a Black separatist movement. He would later change his name to Matulu Shakur and convert to Islam. The opportunity to participate in our struggle was a choice of sacrifice. We knew it would be rough We knew it would mean full participation. But before we went underground, we were with the people. United States versus Panther 21, Wilmington 10, New Haven 17. Everywhere you looked, there was a a postcard of how the state were taking 
people who were community activists and send them to jail for many, many years for nothing but an alleged conspiracy. That was the tactic used by the FBI to establish a, a foundation for counterintelligence operation. The things I'm talking to you about now, even though we call it struggle, they was calling it low intensity warfare. The explanation of warfare was that the participants in most cases didn't know they were at war. The government was very clear that they were at war with us who were then 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. The FBI files are clear when you can look back and see Jarrell Wayne Williams being followed and report on Jarrell Wayne Williams to J. Edgar Hoover every six months when he's only 15 and 16 years old. They spent their money on their enemy. They demanded their agents concentrate on their enemies. That's why they had to kill Fred, Bunchy Carter, John Huggins, Zay Shakur, Lumumba Shakur. This is a war. And when you're in war, you treat your prisoners a certain way so that anybody who believed in him or thought the prison made a rational sense or rational narrative for their sacrifices, you wanted to kill that possibility. And it was a people's war that they didn't know they were involved in until it was too late. While in New York, Matulu began working with the Lincoln Detox Program, a holistic health alternative to medication, which offered drug rehabilitation for heroin addicts using acupuncture instead of methadone. While married to Afini, Matulu became the program's assistant director and remained associated with the program until 1978. He then became certified and licensed to practice acupuncture in the state of California in 1979. He would go on to found and direct the Black Acupuncture Advisory Association of North America and the Harlem Institute of Acupuncture. In October 1981, while still married to Afini Shakur, when Tupac was 10 years old, Matulu participated in a brazen robbery of a Brinks armored car in Nanuet, New York. The crew of activists involved in the robbery stole 1.6 million or 5.4 million in 2023 equivalent currency. The robbers killed a Brinks guard and seriously wounded another. Soon after, they killed two police officers who attempted to stop their getaway vehicle. Matulu was the alleged ringleader of the group. He was able to evade capture for more than five years and was the last man to face charges when caught. Matulu was indicted in 1982 on RICO charges that included the Brinks robbery and other similar robberies, as well as executing the 1979 escape from a New Jersey prison of Tupac Shakur's godmother, convicted murderer Asada Shakur, who was given political asylum in Cuba in 1984 when Tupac was 12 years old, the same year that Afini would divorce him. Matulu was arrested by the FBI on February 12, 1986, in California, when Tupac was 15 years old and living in Baltimore, Maryland. Matulu was sentenced to 60 years in prison, having been grandfathered under the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, which eliminated parole for federal sentences. Matulu was eligible for parole after serving half of his sentence, or 30 years of his 60-year sentence. He was eligible in 2016, but was denied parole. 
He would be denied again in 2018 and then in 2022. On December 16, 2022, Matulu was granted release after serving 37 years due to bone marrow cancer with steadily declining health. He died eight months later on July 6, 2023. He was survived by his daughter Set and his son, Tupac's stepbrother, Moprim Shakur, who was a member of Tupac's rap group, Thug Life. Hey there, fellow true crime enthusiasts and body of crime listeners. As true crime lovers, we're excited to deep dive the Tupac series with our listeners. But before we dive into the dark and mysterious world of crime, I want to tell you about a fantastic local art studio right here in Houston, Texas that you won't want to miss. It's called Province 8 Art Studio, and they have a massive selection of original art to include a large selection of urban and hip-hop art that truly captures the essence of our city. If you're local, then you can find them at 17037 Farm to Market, road 529 is just a stone throw away from where our podcast is produced it's truly a mecca for all things creative from poetry open mic nights recording studio sessions to art classes this is truly a one-stop art depot for the truly creatives but what makes province 8 art studio even more special is their incredible tupac shakur art pieces of which they have several to include our tupac series cover art i'm sure you've seen it on the latest episodes cover tupac playing a guitar standing in front of a microphone capturing the raw energy of his music and spirit. This is an original six foot by four foot canvas piece by Ezra Hezekiah for sale and it can be purchased and shipped worldwide. They ship worldwide? They do. Even six foot pieces like jamming out Tupac? They do. Bigger ones than that. And by going directly to the artist's webpage at www.blackrhinoartgroup.com, you can pick and choose the material, the size, and even the format of your choosing if you're not ready to splurge on the original. You can even get special edition prints, original paintings, digital art. There's so many options. And if you're a decorator like me, you might want to throw in some throw pillows. You might want to get you an ashtray. Might even want to get you some swag. The attention to detail and the way they bring Tupac to life through art is truly remarkable. It's a must-see for any Tupac fan or anyone who really truly appreciates the fusion of art and hip-hop culture. So listeners, do yourself a favor and check out Province 8 Art Studio. Visit their website at www.province8artstudio.com or pay them a visit in person. You'll be blown away by their urban and hip-hop art collection and of course that incredible Tupac Shakur piece. Support local artists and immerse yourself in a world of art inspired by the legends of hip-hop. Province 8 Art Studio is where creativity meets culture. Tell them Joe or Crystal from Body of Crime sent you. We'll post a link in the show notes. Matulu was who Tupac would consider to be his dad. He was the main figure that Tupac would call dad as like a small kid, as like a three, four, five-year-old. And so on Tupac's birth certificate, it said his his real dad was deceased. And he believed that, that his real father was deceased. So he knew Mutulu wasn't his real dad, but he thought his real dad was dead. You have to think about like the conversations that were going on in the house between Afini and Mutulu when Tupac was like, Seven, eight, nine years old. Well, they were both strong-willed individuals. They were both very active in their communities. They were both um, social activists. And they both had a character strength of justice. 
And so when you see Tupac growing up and coming into his own, you see those things. So you see him being a strong person, a caring person, a social activist. So I think those things were important to him because those were things that he grew up understanding and seeing, you know, his mother and his stepfather advocating for other people and fighting for other people and understanding how important it is to help people who belong to your community. It must have been very devastating for Athene to lose Matulu when she did due to him committing that crime because it really broke her family up. And I can almost guarantee that was probably the beginning of a decline in her mental state and her increase in drug use. Because you got to think she was in a solid relationship with this guy who she loved and who she was raising a family with. and She'd been with him for more than 10 years. And then all of a sudden he's on the run. And you know, it's really sad because obviously he made a bad decision. Matulu did. And he had a lot of positive things going for him. Like he could have gone in a positive direction. And so we don't know all the reasons why he participated in what he did. It's unfortunate because he could have really been a source of change for a lot of people had he have gone in a better direction. I think it was part of the political machines that were working back in those days. I think they viewed the government as the enemy. And attacking the government's money was a strategy that they employed. And even Asada Shakur, who he would help escape from prison, they viewed her as a political prisoner. They didn't view her as a criminal who was captured. And they viewed the police as an arm of the government. They felt like they were at war with the government. And I think that was part of their rhetoric. Not that that's the Black Panther rhetoric. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying whatever groups that Matulu was a part of may have viewed the government that way. And that's part of the reasoning why you would take someone who's a doctor and an acupuncturist and then put them in a Brinks robbery. It wasn't for the money. It was for the political aspect of it. It was to drive the the political machine that they were trying to push, you know. So if you go take a look at the 21 who were arrested when Afini was arrested, you're going to see a couple people on there who aren't black. So for everybody who thinks that the Black Panther Party was strictly blacks, it was not. You'll see a couple people on there who are not black, who were part of the Black Panther Party, active participants. William Billy Garland was born March 14, 1949. He has five children, with Tupac making six. The five are all half-siblings of Tupac Shakur. Billy was a member of the New Jersey City branch of Black Panthers in the 1960s, and he met Afeni in 1969 when she was the Black Panther section lead in the Harlem branch for the Black Panthers. The two had a short affair in 1970 while she was out on parole and fighting federal charges on conspiracy as part of the Panther 21. Afeni became pregnant. Billy was around the family during the early 1970s, but eventually lost touch with Tupac when he was about five years old, before Tupac was really old enough to know his dad. Billy Garden had gotten married. The next time that Billy saw Tupac was when Tupac played Bishop in the movie Juice. He wouldn't actually come back into Tupac's life until after he was already famous. 
Tupac would state that he thought his real father was dead his entire life. The guy who I knew was my father, who claimed to be my father, he, he passed away, he died. And is that Legs? Yes, but then recently, while I was, when I, after I got shot, this other guy came, was like, he was my father, and he looks like me. He'd been in the jail to see me. His kids look like me. Well, what was that like? That was the bug out. I just woke up and he was standing over me when I was in the um, hospital. And what did he, I mean, do you believe him? I do in a way because he looks like me and his kids look well, like why me. Why don't you get a blood test to find out? It's, it's scary. Is it pointless now? In a way, I, I mean, I'm not gonna love him anymore or love him any less. Can you tell me why you looked at legs as your father? Because the way my mom's told me was like, he didn't even care. He was like, yo, because he slept with her around the same time. So he was like, you had a kid? She was like, yeah. He came and saw me in the bed. I had a real big head when I was a little kid. Same thing like right now. And he's like, oh, that's my son. No blood tests, nothing. He was just like, that's my son. Took care of him, he gave me money. But he was like a criminal too. He was a drug dealer out there doing his thing. So he only came, bought me money material things. I used to go over to uh, the Bronx, Morningside. I used to visit him. Not as much, though. When the party broke up, it was a, it was just, it was something different. Uh, COINTEL had changed us. COINTEL had had us looking at each other suspiciously. There had been a couple murders, panther on panther murder. That's when everybody went to the four winds. They just scattered. Everybody went their different ways. And I was one of those who went a different way. I lost contact with Afeni, which later I found out she had moved to Baltimore, then Oakland. See, so it was, uh, I'd say maybe 13, 14 years, a gap of not seeing my son. People say, well, why didn't you look for him? I didn't know where. And then it was something that wish I had, more so. But nobody, lived in stationary locations. We all moved. We had apartments, even when we were in the Panthers, we had apartments throughout all the Bronx, all of Manhattan. We were like, you know, gypsies. Not so much uh, in that sense, but in the way that the way we lived, we moved around a lot. So I went to a couple places, but nobody had seen her. They told me someone had moved to Baltimore, so I accepted that. And there was nothing I could do about it at that time. I wasn't as stable as I had wanted to be, wanted to be, so what are you gonna do? Yeah, my boy, same guy, called me up and said, I just saw a movie. And the guy's name was Tupac Shakur. And I'm looking at this poster, and if you look at the poster, kind of looked like me in the poster, because he's in the front. But he really didn't look at like me until you went to the movies. And then when I went to the movies, I saw him. And I was sitting in the theater. I started crying, and I'm sure people next to me must have been, why is this grown man crying in this movie? But they had no idea. I was seeing my son after 15 years on the big silver screen, and it gave me joy and happiness to see him. After the shooting at the Quad Studios on November 30th, 1994, Billy took the opportunity to meet his son when he went to the Bellevue Hospital where Tupac was being treated for multiple gunshot wounds. Tupac was actually surprised to see someone who looked like him and claimed to be his father. While Tupac was recovering in Jasmine Guy's house, Billy was able to spend some time with Tupac, but never really got any alone time with his son. At Jasmine Guy's house, they smoked some weed 
and Billy, who wasn't a weed smoker, ended up passing out. While Tupac was incarcerated on sexual assault charges, Billy would visit him in prison. They would play Monopoly and eat sunflower seeds. It would be here where Tupac would tell his biological father that he loved him. After the Las Vegas shooting, Billy flew out to see his son. Do you think that Tupac would have turned out different or maybe still be alive if you had an opportunity to be in his life like a normal father? Yeah, but would he have been Tupac? People say, well, Paul you was there. Maybe he'd have did better, he'd have survived. But would he have been himself? Would he have been that individual, that spirit? Who's to say? I mean, who's to really say? I wish I was, don't get me wrong, but I'd rather have him alive than famous. After Tupac died, Afeni told Billy that Tupac had been planning on sending for all of his half-siblings in New Jersey for Thanksgiving of that year in November, bringing the entire family together. Two years after Tupac's death, Billy sued the Tupac estate for 50% of the assets, claiming rights as his father, and citing that Afeni had listed him as deceased on Tupac's birth certificate. Afeni insisted that Billy take a paternity test to confirm that Billy was in fact Tupac's father, which Billy took offense to, as he would later complain in an interview that he only wanted the world to know that he was in fact Tupac's dad. Billy would later lose that suit against Tupac's estate. The first in line to siphon Tupac's money was Billy Garland, also known as the sperm donor, the father Tupac had never known. Tupac was 23 years old and was already famous when he met Billy for the first time in 1994. He was laying critically wounded when Billy showed up at his bedside. Tupac talked to him a little bit and during the encounter, Afeni sat quietly in a corner on the carpet giving space to her bedridden son at the same time letting Billy know he did not have the full floor. Oh yes, and Billy showed up again in 1996 at the Las Vegas hospital where Tupac lay in a coma. I wonder what good it does for the dying when you're there for them at the end of their lives, but you never showed up for them while they were living. As far as Billy Garland goes, he seemed to have popped up out of nowhere, at least from where I sat. I knew of the men who had raised Tupac, who had loved Tupac. I had heard all the stories about Tupac's Uncle Tom and his stepfather, Matulu, but I had never heard the name Billy Garland mentioned. I had heard all the when Tupac was a baby stories, and Billy Garland's name had never come up. Legs was mentioned, this tough, colorful street dude who respected Afeni and loved her little boy, took him to the barbershop in McDonald's and called him his son. I had heard about Legs, but not Billy Garland. It was Crooksy who painted Afeni in Tupac's best first bedroom when Afeni moved in with Glow. And there was Tupac's godfather, Cochise, who wrote him loving and careful letters from prison all through Tupac's growing up. I had heard how Glow kissed the newborn Tupac from head to toe as soon as he came out of the womb, but I had never heard stories of Billy Garland. So when I heard the news that Billy Garland was making claim to Tupac's money, I wondered how this man could stand in a courtroom in front of strangers and say he was this boy's father. I wondered, as I heard of this absurd lawsuit, how he could hold his head high enough to even see his way into a courtroom after not living one moment in the child's life. I wondered how he could take the tears of a grieving mother 
as tough as that mother may be and flaunt those tears in front of a judge and lawyers and say, I want some of what's left for her, for myself. It's incredible that a person who has never provided anything for a child, as that child grows up, would try to take what that child has made for himself on his own. All Billy Garland ever did for Tupac was create a void, which Tupac, in all futility, searched to fill for most of his life. So one of Afeni's first trials after Tupac died was to go up against Billy Garland. Fortunately, she was ready. By now, having been warned by Jada and me, she had a team. She had lawyers, Donald David and Rick Fishbein. She had an accountant, Jeffrey Joyner, who began sifting and sorting through Tupac's layers of financial madness. And she had Deloitte Tush, the firm that audited Interscope Records and located Tupac's outstanding compensation. Afeni kind of cut him out. And of course, we don't know why. We don't we don't know the reasons as to why that is. We don't know if there was a good reason, if he wouldn't have been a positive influence in Tupac's life, or if he didn't want to be there. We don't know that. And so for him to come back later in his life when he's famous, you know, it, it kind of makes you wonder why. You didn't come back into his life until he started making money. And are you trying to come and cash in on who your son is now? You know, you want everybody to know he's your son. Why? What if only he knows? So it makes you wonder what his intentions are. And and just kind of, you know, with all the interviews that have come out, with all the books that have been written, he never is a important piece in Tupac's life. And he's never a close piece in Tupac's life. He comes in late. His motives don't seem very authentic. And so nobody really tried to ice him out at that point, but they also didn't pull him in real close either. And, I, you know, I believe in, in seeing how Tupac was that he would have tried to bring the family together. That was important to him. And if he was doing better, I believe that he wanted to see everybody else do better. That was evident in his actions. But... I don't think Tupac would have wanted him to have 50% of his estate, not when it was his mom who spent years struggling and moving around and going through addiction. And and I think the judge was right to not allow for him to have anything. Billy has five other kids besides Tupac, and they're not all with the same person. So they're with multiple women. But he does have a relationship with them all. And he says himself in interviews, he had attempted to find Tupac and Afeni. But every time that he would get a hint of where they might be, by the time he t- would try to, you know, connect with them, they'd be gone again. I believe that Billy was trying to be connected to his son because he's connected to his other kids, all of them. They, he's connected to all of them. His daughter says, all of us siblings are close because my dad helped us remain close, even though we have different mothers. I think that she meant to create distance between Billy Garland and Tupac. And maybe it's not all Billy's fault. But whenever you bring money into the conversation and into the equation, you always have to question the motives of the individuals that just pop up when you're doing well. It's when you're not doing well that really measures the value of the people that are in your life. And if you wanted to look at it as a business transaction, 
you have to look at the investment versus the payoff. Yeah. And I just don't feel like regardless of what the reasons were. Sure. And this is just me personally. Yeah. Is I feel like there wasn't an investment there and therefore he shouldn't be profiting off his son. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I think it's pretty shady to not be in your son's life for your whole life, whether it's your fault or not, and then come back and go, well, I want half of the estate. You haven't earned it, first of all, regardless of whether you're his dad or not. Like, you're really just a donor at that point. I think, if anything, the siblings, like his sister, who he was close to, Sat, and then Moprim, were the ones who were most connected to him and kind of struggled with him through the years. Yeah. If anybody were to see any of that money besides his mom, I think it would have been one of those two. Sure. It be fair. Yeah, yeah. As a mother, you want the best for your kids. And sometimes you don't know as kids, you don't, you don't know the full spectrum of the story. You, you only know one side, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, each side, you just don't know where the truth lies in both. Yeah, that's true. Tupac Shakur was born to two political activists, Black Panther parents and raised around a strong mother who was brilliant in her own right. With stories of Afeni fighting the feds in court, a victim of an unjust criminal system that had attempted to imprison his mother, Tupac would have grown up with justice as a strong value. Like his mother, it is likely he never felt safe and pushed against a world that he viewed as unjust, racist, and out of balance. Afeni fought when she was younger, when she felt like an outcast and was rejected. Tupac had the same fiery energy. It is not coincidental that Afeni had attended a performing arts school and that she then sent Tupac to the Baltimore School for Performing Arts. Tupac's love for performance, his love for acting and taking center stage was a gift from his mother. The world saw it for just a flash. As Afeni took to the world stage and defended the Panther 21, Tupac would do it differently. Tupac's biological father, Billy Garland, would have had little sway on the man that Tupac would become, falling out of his life before he got the chance to really know the man well. But it's likely that portions of his personality, his sense of humor, his wit, might have come from Billy. Dr. Matulu Shakur would have had a strong influence on Tupac as a young boy, and seeing his stepfather go to prison would have given Tupac a fear of power of the justice system and how easily it can tear a family apart. His own family had seemed to dissolve with Matulu's prison sentence, sending his mother into a downward spiral of despair and drug use. Tupac was never anywhere for long, bouncing from New York to Baltimore and then Marin City. He was forced to be a man before he knew what it meant to be a man. And his identity was rooted in political activism, Black Panther rhetoric, and angst against the U.S. legal system. The scourge of crack cocaine and the failed war on drugs allowed Tupac to see the worst the world had to offer. When asked how it felt to have a mother who was addicted to crack cocaine, he said it hurt him. Afeni was his hero and she was failing as a mother. How could he win if his heroes were all losing? It is therefore natural that his music reflected his reality. Tupacalypse, his first record, was full of political and social injustice and told the story of his life growing up. 
The influence of Afini, Matulu, and Billy are in his first songs, tracks like Words of Wisdom, A Soldier's Story, or Rebel of the Underground. Rebel of the Underground spoke about his non-traditional education that he received from his mother and stepfather rooted in political activism. And then songs like Part-Time Mother, Trap, and Violent. Part-Time Mother spoke about the pain of growing up in a broken home where his mother struggled with addiction unable to provide for the family and destitute. Tells of violence in the home, watching his mother being attacked and finding himself defenseless to provide the security he felt he was responsible for as the man of the house. And songs like Brenda's Got a Baby and Crooked A Ninja. I hear Brenda's got a baby, but Brenda's barely got a brain. A damn shame, the girl can hardly spell her name. That's not our problem, that's up to Brenda's family. Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now, Brenda really never knew her moms. And her dad was a junkie putting death into his arms. It's sad because I bet Brenda doesn't even know. Just because you're in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow. Brenda's Got a Baby spoke about the plights of the ghetto and life in the hood. And a society that eats its young. These were the songs that were brewing in young Tupac's mind as he began finding his voice through poetry and in writing verses, attending mic sessions with Layla Steinberg. Tupac was on a crash course with Destiny. His trip would be short, but he intended to make the most of it. As a young black male, Tupac faced many of the struggles of our impoverished youth. There were days when he didn't eat. Nights, he slept on park benches. There were moments when he was forced to turn to some type of criminal behavior to get through the week. He watched his heroes get arrested and sent to prison or worse. He watched them neutralized with drugs and the crack cocaine epidemic that took his mother to her very lowest points. But these struggles and challenges would give Tupac his passion. It would fuel his own fire of activism and change. In this episode, we've seen the physical, social, and mental contribution of Tupac's upbringing, the influences of his parents, both good and bad, the weight on his shoulders as he stepped out into the world with his own message to share with the world. Tupac would find his voice in music and in acting, as we will see in the next episode of Body of Crimes Tupac series, The Life and Death of Tupac Shakur. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. 
If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime podcast. Podcast. Bye.